Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Strong Female Characters, a podcast where every week we assemble like a feminist Voltron to celebrate the badass woman in geek culture through unfiltered deep dives into the nerdverse. I'm Cher. I'm Preeti. And I'm Courtney. And um, I don't know if you guys all know this, but something big happened this weekend. What was it? Uh, the Oscars. What? Yeah. I've never heard of them. But you know what? I did not watch the whole entire show or any of it. I just watched clips online the next day and like Twitter. I watched it. I got tricked into it. I watched bits and pieces. I was mostly watching Doctor Who. Yeah, I was mostly watching Pitbulls and Parolees with my dogs. I watched the whole thing. I got real confused. It was a very Mm -hmm. confusing. It was a confusing production. That's what I've heard. I... Also, I think it's interesting that the ratings were the lowest ever, which I kind of think has more to do with the nominees and the lack of diversity than like a lack of hosts because they didn't have a host last year. I don't think like I don't think not having a host is a problem. I just wonder if it's people are just kind of over it. Like, I think that it is like a matter of like the, the you know, it's. Very much, you know that if Ford versus Ferrari comes out, it's going to be nominated for an Oscar, whether anyone cares about it but your dad or not. Right. And do people care? I think that's why Parasite, which we will get to, obviously, was such a big deal for people where it's like, wow, a movie we actually care about won things. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it has to go to the fact that I think the way the nominees, like when they announce the nominees, I think that gives a good gauge of how... And I'm talking out of my ass. I have nothing to prove this. But I think lately that kind of dictates how dialed in or how tuned in people are going to be to the award ceremony because it's just like it's bullshit at this point. And then there were moments during the show, which, you know, again, I I know enough to have a conversation about it, but there were moments during the show that it felt like very like performative woke, like performative diversity, like, yay, like people of color, yay, women. And it was like so ham fisted, but it's like, cool. You didn't fucking nominate the majority of these people. I don't know, but yay, Parasite. And Taika. Uh, Yay, Taika. Yay, Taika. Sorry. uh, Usually I find the Oscars to be a huge disappointment. For example, this year they nominated ScarJo not once, but twice. Which means she had more nominations than the single person of color nominated across all the acting awards, which was Cynthia, uh, Cynthia oh my God, what's her Ervo. last name? Ervo. Uh, and it was all but in the bag for, honestly, the truly sublime 1917 to take the best picture. But then Taika Waititi, as we said, and Bong Joon-ho won the best screenplay awards. Then Parasite won again and again and again. Taika is the first indigenous person to ever be nominated in the screenwriting category, and he is the second person of Maori descent to ever win an Oscar, period. 
Parasite is the first non-English film to ever win Best Picture. And Bong Joon-ho is the first person to win four Oscars in one night since uh, Walt freaking Disney. Now, this doesn't mean that the Oscars are fixed just because some people of color won. But it is a happy moment when a film like Parasite can be celebrated and appreciated by the same organization that gave Green Book an award for Best Picture. It feels like inviting all those marginalized, all those marginalized people to join the Academy actually did some good. Who knew? As Preeti said, our boy Taika made history as the first indigenous person ever to win in a screenplay category, and he's believed to be the second Maori winner after sound engineer Hammond Peak, who won for Return of the King and King Kong. Fewer than 10 indigenous people have ever been nominated for Oscars, let alone one. Taika's win was historic, and he took his moment to honor indigenous children, saying, I dedicate this to all the indigenous kids in the world who want to do art and dance and write stories. We are the original storytellers, and we can make it here as well. He also acknowledged the land on which the Oscars was being celebrated. The Academy would like to acknowledge that tonight we have gathered on the ancestral lands of the Tongva, the Tataviam, and the Shumash. We acknowledge them as the first peoples of this land on which the motion pictures community lives and works. Obviously, this is of importance to Taika, as it should be to everyone, but that goes ignored unless it's the twist of a horror movie. Yeah, I love that he called that out in his speech, that he specifically made note of the land that they were celebrating a mostly white award show on. I don't know why I'm whispering that, because it's not a big secret that that show is very, very white. Well, and that's obviously like that's a that's a thing he does. He did on the opening shooting day of, of Ragnarok. He had a land acknowledgement ceremony and it was uh, presided over by a Maori uh, officiant. And he had the uh, the Bunjalung tribal dancers from that right. community in Australia dance there. Like that's a really big, important thing. And it should be to everyone like that's a, like we're literally on the land that we, we robbed from people. Exactly. I mean, and he's with every single project that he's done, he's very, very big on um, celebrating Maori culture and celebrating indigenous cultures. He infuses them into everything because even in Thor Ragnarok, for example, there's some of the costume design that's done in that movie is based on or kind of paying homage to Maori like historical outfits that they would have worn, like different mm-hmm. tribes and stuff. One thing that was annoying is that uh, there were some people who immediately made it as though uh, Greta Gerwig was snubbed in favor of Taika, which, like, could we not? Like, the the Academy snubbed Greta in ways of, like, not nominating her for Best Director, things like that. But don't make it seem like, oh, this this deeply privileged man. Yeah. Yeah. The fuck um, out of here. IndieWire literally t- titled their piece Academy Snubs Greta Gerwig for Best Adapted Screenplay and compared the two films, which took some reach. They are very different They are movies. so different. And listen, like, I've never seen Little Women. I've never seen any Little Woman adaptation. I've never read the book. I don't have any type of, like, nostalgic or sentimental attachment to that movie or that property. I have seen Jojo Rabbit. And... Jojo Rabbit is unlike any movie I've ever seen in my life. It's it's like Mel Brooks level. Like think of the absolute best Mel Brooks satire. Like it's just such a high level of satire and doing satire is incredibly difficult. And this was just such a creative different thing. It's like listen, I'm not shitting on Little Women. I'm not saying that Greta Gerwig did not deserve any nominations, but 
it's been done already once before. Like this was more original to me. I don't know. I haven't seen yeah. again. Haven't seen the movie. I'm sure it's great. I loved both of them, but like art is subjective and right. that's just, it is what it is. Um, but w- the thing that really annoyed me in the Indi- IndieWire piece is there's a literal like end blurb that says the post has been updated to reflect the historical significant sick of Waititi's Oscar win. It's like, so clearly this was just like, oh, he beat Greta and then like got shit on. So it's just like, no, but whatever. it's also good that he won the end. I don't have time to spell significance right. Goodbye. There was just a lot of, like, very uncomfortable, I mean, honestly, like, racism that jumped out after the Oscars. And you saw it not only in the, like, sheer white feminism of the Greta Gerwig was snubbed for Taika Waititi, but also in the anger that a subtitled film won Best Picture. You know, there was a lot leading up to it. Like, I genuinely was like, 1917 is going to win because of all of the articles that came out about being annoyed at having to read a subtitled film. Plus Mm -hmm. the Academy notoriously is horny for war, for epic war movies. For all of those reasons as well. And there's still like, there was like a mother Jones piece that came out yesterday that literally was like this person being like, I hate subtitles. They're stupid. I think there was a line in it that was like the only people who still do subtitled films are countries that are too poor to afford dubbed film. What? And it was like, whoa, you're really going to publish that? Like, this is not this is about the like assumption that a film that is not in English is less than like the best thing that's come out of all of the Parasite like press stuff is Bong Joon-ho recognizing the absurdity of like American egocentric film awards, like this idea that English films are better, that you know, white films are better that whatever. And him being like, yeah, it's a local ceremony. And then like sweeping is the best thing that's ever happened. First of all, everything about him is great. And did you see, um, is it, what's her name? Jenny Yang? Yan? What's her name that does uh, the Yang. Ro- Yang. Okay. Yang. I always get her and Jenny. There's three different Jennies. I get their last names confused because I always forgot who I'm talking about. Did you see her tweet, her story about how when she was shooting the uh, sequel. Oh, Jenny Han. Jenny oh, Han. Sorry, yes, that's about, it. You're talking about Jenny Han. Because Jenny Yang is a comedian. Jenny Han, that's... Yes. Okay. So Jenny, Jenny Han. Han, she was tweeting a story about how she, they were shooting the sequel to All the Boys I Loved Before and they were in Korea, in South Korea. And they had a PA as their driver because you kind of have to like drive everywhere when you're in Seoul. And she starts talking about um, that parasite. And the driver's like, oh, like, is he famous over there? Like asking about you know, Bong, if he's like famous or not. And she's like, oh my God, like he's the most famous, like he's the biggest Korean director, the most famous Korean director, da da da. Um, and he's like, oh. And then she starts asking him about like his parents. And his last name was Bong also, which is like, listen, it's a common last name. It's a common name, you know? So she's like, he's like, oh yeah. He's like, um, yeah, my father also has, uh, you know, he works in the film, like works in film. She's like, oh, like, how do I know any of his work? And then he starts listing Pong movies. And she was like, oh, my God, like, it's his son is was her PA. And was like so unassuming did not like make a thing out of the fact that his dad was who is who he is, you know. But um, it was a very funny, very cute little anecdote. And I personally have loved seeing Bong 
on the award circuit. Like I loved seeing him when he won the Oscars and he was like making them make out like Barbies. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. everything about it's like he sees I felt like he's such a breath of fresh air because he sees he sees everything for what it is and is kind of like this is madness and ridiculous but I'm going to enjoy this ride while I'm on it because this is a wild ride. And mm-hmm. like but I feel like that's kind of I like seeing that because too often I think you hear or see uh, how Hollywood and that in the industry deforms people in a way like the little girl that's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that's 10 and was posing and talking during the red carpet like she is 33 and like an adult and that always kind of creeps me out when children act like adults because it's like be a kid like get to be a kid. You know, like don't know how to give face on a red carpet at 10. Mm. I love that that story ended with the with the driver being uh, Bong Joon-ho's son because Bong Joon-ho has such powerful dad energy. Like just like taking <laughs> yeah. pictures of his cast winning. He's just so proud. Yeah. It just makes me so happy. So good. Um, there were other moments of note in the night. Uh, <laughs> Joaquin's speech was a real roller coaster. Yeah. A lot happening there. Lot, lot going on. You know, we we praised him for his on. speech last week. He, he, it got away from him. And this, I think this is a prime. Time. Yeah, this is a prime example of why he needs to write shit down. It's one of those things that I, I would not tweet. I would not say it out loud. Like I wouldn't do anything. I didn't watch the whole thing because I heard how cringeworthy it was. And what's that term when you get like secondhand embarrassment? Like, I was like, oh, this is terrible. It was very uncomfortable to watch. Like, I watched it with my sister and we were both like, um, you almost got there. Mm -hmm. And then you you went real, took a real hard turn and and it got away. It just got away from you. Didn't he like equate eating? um, That's the thing I was about to say. (laughs) And I thought you were telling me not to say it. Oh, no, you can say it. No, I'm not saying don't say it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was going to say I'm uncomfortable. I wasn't going to tweet it because I did not want like animal rights people like, you know, getting very mad at me on Twitter. Uh, I'm really uncomfortable with equating putting milk in your coffee to being on the same level as like racism in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. Or just racism. Uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable. Like you can't equate choosing to not be vegan to systematic oppression of an entire race. Yeah. Or anyone that's not white. Yeah. I I do want to point out very quickly, like we, we touched on sort of the performativeness of having so many people of color on stage, which I, I agree. There's this like really uncomfortable notion where you have like Janelle Monet and, and Billy Porter doing this incredible intro, but then having her say like, you know, I'm here representing this thing that is not being right. recognized for its greatness. Mm-hmm. And same with like, uh, Utkarsh, Ambedkar came out and wrapped, uh, a recap in the middle of the show, which I was super excited about. Cause I love him. And he's like great South Asian rep. And he said a line like, I'm here to do a recap about nominees that don't look like me. Yeah. And so it was like this consistent recognition. But mm-hmm. the the Oscars were produced by two women, a white woman and a black woman. So I think I do think that there was a specific like, fine, 
we didn't do the work in the nomination process, but we're we're going to try to do some course correcting. And it was just like a really like weird line because I don't know what's worse. Right. Like yeah. not having that yeah. or having it like. Right. I don't, and I don't think producing that show is the same as voting on nominees. Right. No, not at all. So but it's I like, I think people definitely need to understand the difference there. I think on behalf of the Oscars as a whole, I can understand the two people producing the show. They're like, well, here's our chance to exactly. give people a platform and good on anyone. I'm all for anyone that uses their privilege in their, pa- their platform, whether it's, you know, again, race, gender, you know, socioeconomic, sexual identity, whatever your your privilege or platform is like when you have the chance to have a platform and you have people, a captive audience, people are listening to you all for people taking that moment and shooting their shot and making a statement to elevate others. But it does feel on the flip a little like, okay, well, the Academy as a whole, because they obviously are going to sign off on whatever the show is you know like it's not like they get to just do whatever they feel like it it just feels like okay well you're okay with benefiting from the entertainment of people of color of women of color you know of of the lgbt community of women but you know and having like you know the moment when gal and brie and Sigourney presented together and they were all like, yeah, women, like women are superheroes. It's like you shouldn't have to fucking have them say that, you know, like you should just be giving those movies the same love and attention or giving those properties or projects the same love and attention that you would if it was a predominantly white cast and director. It's just always cringy when the audience is like laughing on, like, ha ha, there's no black people nominated. Like, yeah, guys, that's ju- that's mm-hmm. that's a that's a for that's for the home audience joke. But one joke that I did think was great, again, did not see the whole broadcast, saw a clip of this, watched it multiple times because I laughed my ass off, was when Rebel Wilson and, uh, how did I just, James, what's his face? James Corden. Thank you. James Corden. Came out in Bad Cats costumes and then did the whole bit and started smacking the shit out of the microphone. The microphone part was so funny to me. I think that whole thing was so funny because think about it. Like they were dressed up and then agreed to have full like pancake makeup done and wear those costumes on stage. Like that's, that's being they willing to play that for the movie. They didn't even have to do it. And I think, <laughs> right, exactly. And it's like, they were just like kind of a, I don't know. I was like, you guys are assholes. <laughs> if I was Tom Hooper, I'd be like, fuck you guys. I what thought the- it was funny. <laughs> the VFX, one of the VFX artists, uh, Eve McRae said he tweeted this saying, hey, hey, guys, I haven't watched all of the Oscars, but I assume these two were really classy and thanked me for working 80 hours a week right up until I was laid off and the studio closed. Right. <laughs> Ouch. And that's the thing. Like, I kind of I don't think they were making fun of the VFX. I think they were kind of taking the piss out of the general consensus about the movie. Side note, it was by Universal. They do sign me a paycheck. Um, yeah, I don't think you were on the one where I said, like, I don't want to get fired, but this movie was buck wild. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I didn't see this movie. Please don't fire me. But I thought it was funny because clearly there was at one point in time when Cats was first in announced that they thought this was going to be an awards contender. They literally <laughs> released it unfinished so that it would be released. Yeah, in time, in time to be for considered Oscar for season. the Oscars. And clearly that was not the reaction that they got. And 
I thought the part to me that was funny, like I didn't take it that they were making fun of the VFX people that worked on that movie. I took it as like they were kind of like the best way, like if you have a bomb in Hollywood is to kind of like be in on it. Kind of how like Sandra Bullock showed up to accept like a Razzie when she was nominated the same year that she like got nominated for an Oscar. Like I think that letting yourself be in on the joke is just kind of a better way to be about things instead of just pretending it didn't happen or getting like all in your feelings about it. Um, But the cat, it was the cat smacking the mic stand that made me lose my shit. That's what I thought was so funny because they were literally like their eyeline, they were watching it like they were really cats. And it was very, that part was funny to me, whether or not they even had the outfits on, but the outfits made it better. Well, we we got more to say though. We got more to say and we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other big event that happened this weekend. A little movie called Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn opened this weekend to $33 million dollars. Frankly, not a terrible opening, but as with female-fronted films, this is, of course, a disappointment that must be examined. <sighs> According to the Male Brain Trust of I'm Twitter, so it's due to the film's unsexiness, meaning it was not filmed, costumed, and entirely designed around the male gaze, as Harley was in a little film that rhymes with schmooicide schmoth. In an effort to boost sales, major theater chains are changing the title to Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey, which, like, fine. Non-comics fans aren't super familiar with Birds of Prey. It's why Guardians of the Galaxy was a surprise hit. It shouldn't be the expectation, particularly when female-fronted films are always going to face more bullshit. Plus, it was rated R, and it made its budget back internationally. Not all female superhero films exist in the same realm for the same audience. Honestly, a fairer comparison might be John Wick 2. The second entry for a character in an R-rated movie that is pretty violent and also earned around 30 million. It's actually no. There is a perfect comparison for this and it's not John Wick. Batman fucking begins made 48 million in its opening weekend just like this movie did. That's it. Period end of story. Batman begins underperformed Superman Returns which was the Superman that, you know, that asshole Brian Singer did, but Brandon Routh's Superman made more money than Batman Begins and did not get a sequel. So Batman Begins got a sequel off of the same exact opening that this movie had. It got a whole trilogy. People are still horny for this trilogy for this de- to this day. So I don't want to hear it. But, you know, when women are at the center, people want failure. Anything less than a massive success is failure. Right. Which and is bullshit. That's dark. It is bullshit. And, and but like we want to honestly numbers aside, because you can skew the numbers in any way you want and you can talk about the numbers in any way you want. Like, I think there's a very weird, deliberate, insidious narrative that is being pushed about this movie. Yeah. That it's a huge failure. Um, but the the fact is that this movie is actually super fun, super She's great, so good. super authentic. So, like, let's talk about that side of it, that that like regardless of what the media narrative is around the success or failure of this movie, one, go see it, please. It's yeah, definitely awesome. go see it. I never gave a shit about Harley Quinn. I was always like, ah, whatever. She's there. This movie made me like Harley Quinn, which is weird because she's a fucked up character but this movie actually made me like harley quinn i think this presented her in a much more three-dimensional way and gave her 
she was an, an actually flushed out character. And I can't say that there's ever been that for this character in any other iteration. Um, plus, it's got a fucking awesome soundtrack. Hello. And all the clothes look like if you raided David Bowie's wardrobe during like his Ziggy Stardust years. This movie was clearly like what happens when you give strong cast to of women to a female director and a female writer because it was so there were you know you watch these movies and you see it like I I saw Suicide Squad and I thought my biggest issue with that movie was honestly like the loss of potential like there's so much potential in that movie to be great and they just didn't trust the audience but the two best parts of that movie are Will Smith and Margot Robbie yeah because Margot Robbie despite the way her character is treated like she treated the role with aplomb and really felt like she understood that Harley was an important character. And so getting to take that character who Margot Robbie clearly loved and put it in a role where she is respected by the director and the writer, like you could tell the difference. Yeah. And see, overall, I think the other thing, too, is that you have multiple female characters in this movie that they're not likable, on the surface, right. they're not likable. And they don't have and, to Exactly. Be. And they don't have to be, yet you end up completely rooting for them. And they are all damaged. And they all are, they're all, it's female vengeance. And I think that really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you call this movie. It's because it's female vengeance. And I think that, I think that studios have a hard time marketing that because they're still trying to market it to the typical audience, which is like the white male audience. And I think also that audience, it makes them uncomfortable because there were definitely moments in this movie where I could relate to various parts and various emotions and various reactions that each of these characters had. Obviously there was was a slightly more extreme level, but like, you knew what it was like to feel like the woman that is just like the token woman and you never getting your opportunity to really stand and be a leader or be taken seriously like Black Canary felt, right? Like she's just the girl. She's just the broad. She's the pretty girl, you know, and she's never getting the recognition or or being able to actually take center stage or really fucking run shit and she's capable. Or, I mean that's also like Rosie Perez's exactly. story with Renee Montoya in the in the in the precinct. I thought this movie like I agree with you. I thought it was super authentic, super relatable. You know, there are moments in there that are you know, when you're watching as a female viewer, like mean something, right? But on the other hand, like I keep comparing it to when I saw Avengers for the first time, like seeing Avengers in theater was such a good time. It like didn't have the baggage of the entire MCU. It had like, it was just like a kind of like banana story, like really fun action sequences, like really fun camaraderie between the cast. That's how I felt watching Birds of Prey. Like it was a fun ass movie to see in the theater where you're just like, this is like, I had a smile on my face almost the entire time. Cause it was just watching these people, like this ensemble cast, like have a good time with each other in these like absurdist scenes. Yeah. You know, let's, I'll be totally honest. The first time I saw Avengers, I was like, eh. and then after I saw after I started caring more about the other characters, 
I went back and rewatched Avengers and then I liked it better. And I think this again yeah. goes back to the like giving these other movies, listen, Avengers made a shit ton of money, but that's because it was like they put that out well after they established the MCU. And oh, I think, yeah. And 100%. I think comparing the MCU to the DCEU is not really fair no. because those are two very different tactics. So I'm going to compare it more to like the Batman movies. And I, Batman Begins, I was like, it's fine. But then after I saw The Dark Knight, I went back and I appreciated like in its entirety as part of the sequel and the overall story, those movies work better together. Obviously, there's going to be people that feel like one is stronger than the others, but Batman Begins was fine. It was a fine movie, <laughs> you know? I very much I very much about, like, the experience of yeah. seeing a movie in a theater. Just, like, the sheer entertainment value of it. Like, I'm meaning that, like, I don't think movies, like, superhero movies need to have this, like, intense depth to them. Right. Like, I think Birds of Prey was a great example of a movie that, like, you, if you are from a particular community, you might get more out of it, but I think Every single person who goes and sees that movie, like, will enjoy it if they take it at face value. Yeah. Like, if they don't, like, tie a bunch of, like, expectations and, and hopes to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's just a fun movie. Totally like, that's is. what it was, right? Like, it's just going into it. It's, like, bright colors. It also, like, made me feel like a lot of, like, when I watched Scott Pilgrim. Yes. It like, had that very... Just, like, it, like it felt like it was pulling you into a comic book a little bit. Yeah, it was with very the like stylized. Yes, very like you know it opens with a cartoon of Harley giving us her like background. It's got like Which Harley's so voiceover. Funny. I loved her voiceover it, in this whole movie. So funny! Like it was a very funny like I think smart movie. Like I not to say it's perfect. Like I think narrative like the narrative structure had its weak points. You know, like I didn't think the whole like going back in time and rewinding and like nonlinear storytelling was necessary or, yeah. or really worked all that well, but it didn't matter at the end of the day. It wasn't, like, at the end of the yeah, day, it, was fun. it didn't not work, but it didn't elevate the story. Right. It wasn't yeah. necessary. It was, that felt very like stylistically driven, not narratively yes. driven. And you could kind of tell. Yeah. Right. But that said, like when you watch this movie, like you can see distinct differences in Kathy Yan's direction and recognizing that these women are women. Because, okay, so there's this scene like um, when Ewan McGregor, who is a delight, like a goddamn delight in this movie, who is like kind of funny and like this villain that you're like not necessarily taking seriously, but then he's in the club and he's like feeling oh like very God, like yes. small yes. and he forced this woman. And it was, it was honestly one of the most like the hardest Wait, spoiler to watch. Sorry. Spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. I mean, we're, we're like in it now. So yeah. spoilers <laughs> throughout, like, sorry, but he, you know, he's like forcing her to undress in front of this room full of people. He like forces it and it's so uncomfortable, but I yeah. think the difference in the way, like he has a man to like rip her dress off, like whatever. But the difference in the way that it felt very much like this was not centering, like we were not meant to be voyeurs in this situation. We yeah. were meant to identify with how anxious this woman was. Like they right. didn't tear the dress off. So it wasn't like we're like this like lewd moment of watching this woman's like it dress wasn't hyper sexualized. That's really exactly. What it, yeah, it was uncomfortable. It was anxiety inducing, but it was about her pain and anxiety, not about um, the, the kind of like titillation of seeing a woman's dress torn off yeah absolutely. and that was like 
that's a line, right? That's the difference that you get when you have someone who understands that experience. Absolutely. Filming the experience. Yeah. And you can say that really kind of across the board with so many yeah. things in this movie, because I yeah. know that Harley, for example, she was wearing just as little as she was in any of yep. the previous movies. And yet it never felt like she was being hypersexualized or it was or it was like object like objectifying her in any way because mm-hmm. yeah she was wearing this just as little but everything about how that character was claiming ownership of herself of her behavior of her actions and of like knowing who she was and deciding like yeah this is who I am and this is like how I'm going to use my sexuality the way I choose to use it right. whereas before it always felt like she was joker's arm candy that was Mm -hmm. dressed that way for him there's a great like uh like people are doing cop scenes of how literally how like margot robbie moves in the two roles if you look at how harley moves in suicide squad versus how she moves in birds of prey like you can physically see the difference in the character who is owned and the character who owns herself right like doing similar things like dancing on the pole. There are shots of Harley in both films dancing on the pole and they are drastically yeah, different. Because one of them is supposed to like one. She's supposed to be titillating to Joker and whoever else is there. Yep. The other one, it's a little bit of like a fuck you. I'm getting up yeah. and I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to be drunk. <laughs> I'm getting like it was so defiant. <laughs> Even in Suicide Squad, okay. which I did not see all of Suicide Squad because it was hard for me to sit through that movie. But I do remember when you first meet her in Suicide Squad and she's in the cage and she's doing like this sexual like Cirque du Soleil mm-hmm. dance. And then flip to this movie in Birds of Prey where she's doing a lot of the similar moves, but she's beating the shit out of guys. You know? Oh, yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I all for that. Like, listen, I am a very sex positive feminist. Like I used to work at Hooters. Like, I know. So it's like I get the whole like thing about objectification versus like if you're stupid enough to pay me money or give me attention because I have like this shirt on, then like I'm going to fucking take advantage of that. You know, whatever. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. You know, whatever. But I, I really I did not have any expectation for this movie. And I ended up thoroughly enjoying this movie and Alana Bennett I saw tweeted a great description she said that this is like day glow John Wick and it totally is and I mean John Wick obviously is Keanu but still I love those movies I loved this movie and I'm just really disappointed in the coverage there has been around this movie and I'm wondering if there was also something in the way these movies are being marketed and promoted oh no i think there absolutely is like there needs to it's it's sort of like you see a lot of one size fits all yeah marketing when it comes to these superhero movies but when marketing is at its best is when it's specific to the property yeah and i don't know that i don't i don't actually know i'm assuming there's some kind of firm that's doing all of the promotion and marketing for this like i don't know if it's internal i don't know if it's external but whoever is doing it i think you know, there was a great article a few years ago that I believe, I want to say it was on like Radar or something that was about John Carter mm-hmm. and why that film tanked wasn't necessarily like the film itself. It was how the film was talked about and how they decided to market it because yeah. that matters so intensely. 
It absolutely does. And when people go like, oh, it's R, it's R rated. That's why. Dude, Deadpool blew up and that had an R rating. So I, it's like, and that was, I think, a great example of a movie that did fantastic marketing and yeah, like it, it marketed itself. for the movie that it was. And I just, right. I don't know that that's what happened with this movie. And I feel like, you know, to be honest, I don't know that that happened with the previous Wonder Woman movie. And I don't know that that's going to happen with the next Wonder Woman movie. Like I just... I and it's there's a commonality there, you know, because it's like I'm not saying it's just, you know, unique to DC. Like, I don't really know how we're going to see Black Widow marketed because we've only seen a couple trailers, you know. I mean, that, that's like a very I feel like Black Widow is a whole other conversation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's but I just mean lot. like female superhero yeah. movies overall, because even if you go back to Catwoman, listen, I know. Or like Ghostbusters. The, yeah, Ghostbusters. Like, I just think there's something with the way that female movies are not being marketed properly. And again, I think it's because, and I understand, you know, when people, like their jobs are like, we have to get numbers and we have to make sure we hit a certain box office. And that's someone's very real job. And, you know, sometimes when they're like, yeah, but they can't afford to take this certain risk or do this certain thing because they don't want to alienate the audience that usually shows up for them. And I understand that like someone's job truly is on the line when it comes to this stuff. But at the same time, it shouldn't be someone's on the someone's job is on the line. Like someone should be like, hey, they're still making all this money. How are we going to get all these people that we're not catering to? You had two, three women of color that were leads, lead characters in this. Okay, And there's been numerous reports over the past couple of years how. Hispanic or Latino audiences are the biggest growing demographic in the movie industry that are showing up to movie theaters. And you have Rosie Perez, who is an established household, iconic, iconic like woman that is in this movie. That's a bigger conversation. Like, that's also a bigger conversation, because I will say this is that like those those studies came out. They have they have been coming out every year yeah. for like almost a decade. Yep. And there is a intense like very clear commitment to the power structure that exists yeah. in Hollywood like a very clear like messaging structure that exists of like like we every every year it's the same conversation so like that that I'm not surprised by this notion that like like the fact that Fast and the Furious like makes a zillion dollars yeah. every single movie that comes out because of people of color because yeah. of people of color going to the theater to see to spending money to go see these movies in the theater. So like that is not at all surprising to me. With Birds of Prey, I agree with you. I think misogyny is a lot of it that comes into it and not like you said catering the messaging to audiences to the potential audience but catering a message to an audience that has been proven to be diminishing. Less so about the specific person who was doing that job and right. more so about the like kind of the general yeah. right this general like storyline and narrative within Hollywood and what deserves the yeah. focus and attention and what doesn't. And so with with Birds of Prey, I think all of us, what we can do is kind of like reiterate that like you should go see this movie in the theater, which we recognize as an expensive prospect. But like if you're going to see a movie in the theater, like this is one to go see. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like it's such a joy like I do I want to spend a little time on the visuals yeah because right like the sequence where Harley comes to the the precinct the police, yes with oh, the fun gun my, the freaking fun gun with and the glitter and awesome. the color 
I want a fun gun and I don't like guns. And I'm like, oh my God, if someone sent me a fun gun that shot glitter and like, oh my God, I would lose my shit. I would, there would be glitter all over 30 Rock. Literally, like every single day, I would get in trouble because there would be glitter everywhere over 30 Rock. If someone like, why doesn't that thing exist? Like, come on, there is an opportunity there and you missed it. Who doesn't want to be just throwing glitter everywhere? I love it. I also like and I don't know that this was intentional, but I also love how gay that is because you know how usually the gay community, the LGBT community, when someone is homophobic, they glitter bomb them. And I just, I would be, yeah, I would be I glittering mean, I, everything. I appreciated the explicit queerness of this film. So like, queer. Putting Rosie Perez as an ex-girlfriend to um, Ali Wong and having it said on screen, I thought was great. And I know that Margot Robbie has come out and said that she wants like in the next film, yeah. Um, for Poison Ivy. Again, why you should go see this in the theater is like, I want like a million Birds of Prey movies. Oh, hell yeah. And also in the animation in the beginning, when she's talking about oh, all yeah, her yeah, failed yeah. relationships, one of them she shows is with a girl. Woman. So it was like, uh, right off the bat, like you're like, hey, we're being, we are embracing everything that this is. And I love that. I love that. I mean, there's so much to love about this movie from like, from, you know, like we said, like all of the women, like, um, you have all these these women, so you can have so many like uh, L.J. Basco, who plays Cassandra Kane, mm-hmm. who is, by the way, Dante Basco's niece, Rufy. Oh, I didn't like, know that. Oh, Hollywood my God. That's amazing. Royalty. She is Hollywood royalty. <laughs> Recognize. Like, having this little Asian girl who is in such like and and having again, spoilers, having this little Asian girl, this little 13 year old girl who is like a total punk ass where they're fighting uh all the the men of gotham yes as, as uh roman says and each at each moment one of the women check in with her yeah to make sure that she's gonna be okay right yes like, i love that, that. Great. yeah uh, but then giving her the role of blowing roman the fuck up literally <laughs> was one of the moments of genius in this script. It really was. Because I didn't see that coming at all. I thought nope. that, <laughs> I thought that like Bruce was going to show up, which by the way, I think it's hilarious. She named her hyena after Bruce Wayne. Um, <laughs> so funny. But I also really appreciated the, there was this tenderness, like you said, like with all the women checking in with her. But I think it also showed the reality of like, this is going to sound kind of corny, but at the end of the day, like these women were all looking for love in some manner, yeah. whether it was from other women, it was from friendships and camaraderie. You know, Harley even saying at one point that like, you know, she hates to admit it, but she liked having the kid around because it mm-hmm. was she had someone that just enjoyed the things that she didn't just wanted to be with her. It wasn't trying to make her be evil or anything. You're just literally kicking back, watching cartoons, eating cereal and you like the same shit. And it's like, I think that. It was so awesome to see that because, again, even though these characters, some of them are very fucking flawed human beings, which everyone is, um, you found the humanity in each one of them, which I don't always think happens when you're talking about this genre. No, I agree. I thought they did a really, really strong job with everyone from Journey Small at Bell, like we talked about Black Canary. Um, I did also want to talk about Mary Elizabeth Winstead as Huntress because I thought she was so funny yes 
the moment where she's like this whole frustration and anger that no one will call her what she wants yes. to be called. Like the crossbow killer. No. <laughs> and practicing <laughs> how to say me. they call me Huntress. <laughs> And then they're like, that's a really badass name. (laughs) Like, it is a badass name. You're absolutely right. I wish I could remember who said this, but somebody on Twitter was like, Birds of Prey is the like equivalent of two drunk girls in the bathroom together. A thousand percent. Complimenting each other. Yes, it is. It so fucking is. It so is. Specific camaraderie that comes from. Being in the bathroom at two in the morning with a bunch of women at like some bar or some club. And especially after if you find out one of them just got fucked over by like her boyfriend, which like I think we should. Yes. (laughs) As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We really should talk about what at the heart of this movie, which at the end of the day, this is a post breakup movie. And mm-hmm. it's obviously told from the perspective of a girl that just had her heart broken, even if it was by a trash guy. Because regardless of who you love, if there's one thing that truly unifies everyone, it's that simple fact that most of us at some point has been in a relationship, at least one relationship that was truly on every level completely fucking bad for us we've all had that one thing if it was a fucked up fling unrequited love a long-term mind fuck or emotional roller coaster that nearly broke us and hopefully in some cases gave us the strength to make it out the other side stronger and more self-assured than ever before and birds of prey is that story it's that ultimate post-breakup story and harley and joker are definitely one of the most toxic love affairs in comics history. But Mr. J and his one-time paramour are hardly the only problematic pairing. The genre space is rife with them. And comic books are ground zero. So we're going to take a look at a couple of the most iconic couples in comics and break down the good, uh, the bad, and every moment she should have dumped his or her ass and moved on. Um, So we each picked a couple Obviously, you know, we did tease a little bit about Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, which it is going to be in the next season of the cartoon, correct? Yes. Okay. And Margot does want it in the next movie, and hopefully there will be a next movie. But I think we should save that conversation for another date, because I want to compare some of the other couples in comics that are, like, really known. So... Obviously, Preeti, you, you could start it off. And I'm sure everyone's going to be very, very shocked at who Preeti's going to talk about. Gasp. <laughs> this is so off-brand for you. So, obviously, like, I picked Peter Parker because romance is a 
big piece of uh, Spider-Man's history. He has these like iconic loves. You know, there's an entire miniseries called Spider-Man Blue that kind of goes through his history with um, Gwen Stacy and Mary Jane uh, and tries to right some of the wrongs a little bit. You know, if you read, if you go back and read classic Spider-Man, um, one of the things that like that one of the things that kind of jumps out from the text is consistent casual misogyny just all the time it's it makes it tough to go back and read those issues when you're just constantly seeing the way that women are belittled in the narrative and the way that like peter thinks so little of like betty brant and and the way he talks about mj because you know the way mj and gwen stacy were set up whereas like diametric opposites like gwen stacy peter knew from school he knew her like, like through this and MJ's kind of this like wild party girl. You know, you've got the blonde, you've got the redhead, you have these things. And of course, we all know the infamous like one Stacy who existed to give Peter motivation. Goblin killing Gwen Stacy is one of the most iconic moments of fridging in entertainment history, arguably. So it's, it's just at this moment that I realized Peter's early love stories were very Archie, Betty, Veronica. Oh, 100 percent. It's every women in early. I think you see a lot of this of female characters in early comics tend to be archetypal. Like they're very they don't get to be fully fleshed out characters. They don't get to be anything other than like representative of pieces of what a man might want. It is difficult to engage with. And, and there are some rights that have been attempted to be or there are some wrongs that have been attempted to be righted by taking these legacy characters and giving them agency now in the last, like, yeah. two or three decades. I picked Catwoman and Batman because this couple, they basically, since Catwoman's introduction, and she was known as the cat back then, they are just the epitome of, like, passion and p- two people being drawn to each other that they probably shouldn't be. <laughs> Because it's, I mean, it's like a pure physical, like, you just really want this person. Because literally every single timeline, pretty much, that Batman and Catwoman, because, you know, DC with their alternate universes, almost every alternate universe, those two end up with each other. And even when it's not Batman and Catwoman, and it's Selina and Bruce, and they don't know that the other one is who they are, they're still drawn to each other. So that is like pure magnetism with the two of them there's pure sexual chemistry there it's they're very sexual pairing they're also so fucking dysfunctional because all they do is fight like every single incarnation of that romance is those two it's like you want to fuck them and fight them that's really what that relationship kind of always is (laughs) i mean okay so here's what i have a question for you because i don't i'm not a huge dc reader like i enjoy the cartoons i've seen the movies yeah but to me, like my, I mean, my Catwoman uh, and Batman are very much from the movie. You know, it's very much like Michelle Pfeiffer. Right. And so to, to me, what that care, that relationship has always been kind of more on equal footing, which I've found very refreshing in that, like, it doesn't feel like either one of them ever truly has power over the other. Exactly. Yeah. A hundred percent. And it's really, I think... It's a constant pull, push, pull with the two yeah. of them. Like there isn't somebody that's dominating that relationship because at one point, just when it seems like everything's going to be working out for them or whatever the case may be, something come, like one of them gets the other right. one, so to speak. I would say 
maybe even in some cases, Selena might slightly have the edge over Bruce because he just like, he can't not, he's always drawn back to her. And Mm -hmm. I think that the interesting thing about both of them is that I think similar to how Joker and Batman have this very antagonistic yet symbiotic relationship with each other as a villain and a hero because they represent so many, so much of each other. Like, you know, Batman, if he just went slightly further across the line, like he's, he's basically Joker. Joker's his id, right? Right. I think there's something similar in some way when it comes to Catwoman and Batman, because I think he, she, you know, she's a murderer. She is, you know, very cunning. She's all these dark things and she wears her darkness on the forefront a little bit more openly. And I think that that part of her is a part of him. It's like that's the suppressed darkness in him that he's trying so hard to always not cross that line. She crosses it. And I Mm -hmm. think that's what he's drawn to. And I think the fact that he's able to not cross that line, I think Selena deep down wants to be able to not not give into or not you know, I think like she doesn't have any impulse control he does and that's what she's drawn to in him that he's able to control his impulses a little bit better than she is because there's times where Selena she's people like to say she's a supervillain. I think she's more of an anti-hero and I think a yeah. perfect example like of this is really in the Christopher Nolan movies in the last yes. one in the Dark Knight Rises when you see yep. that he's like I know there's still something good and you are going to make the right choice you are a good person and I think that she really as a character wants not only to believe that about have someone believe that about her but she wants to believe that about herself and I think that's what she gets in Bruce is that when he has those moments where he's affirming that she is good she believes it and she's actually able to be good to him But then it's like almost like out of like she comes from a very damaged past, you know, where Mm -hmm. Bruce witnessed his parents being murdered, which obviously is his huge damage. Her huge psychological damage is that her it was either her father or her stepfather abused her. And it's like they're never able to really get over those things. And that forms so much of who they are and how they operate. So it's like I think that that's always a thing that kind of pulls her back from allowing herself to really be with him. And also because she's Catwoman, you know? I mean, it's funny because I'm, I'm comparing it in my head a little bit to Black Cat and Spider-Man because Felicia Hardy is not a dissimilar character yeah. from, from Selena Kyle in that she's sort of an anti-hero. You know, she runs good and bad. And, and they're uh, like the Spider-Man Black Cat relationship is one of my favorites because it is painfully uneven mm-hmm. where Felicia kind of has all of the power right and, and Peter has very little um not to say that he can't hurt her because like you know there's a whole superior Spider-Man arc that forces you know whatever like I've, I've whatever uh but there is this notion of I think the most interesting aspect of Black Cat and Batman is that equality is that kind of like evenness of footing between the two of them because it's so rare in our like classic comics couples i think another one that you can kind of see it in is rogue and gambit Mm. and even though they were never totally a couple i think maybe they are sometimes i kind of feel that way about wolverine and jean gray yeah i mean jean gray has all this other i mean this is the other thing about female characters in comics is the baggage that they are given by their writers like Jean Grey is a really unique proposition to me because of the way her character is treated outside of her relationships and yeah. that, you know, with the Phoenix and 
and Madeline Pryor existing and all these like kind of strange things. I think there could have been the potential for Wolverine and Jean Grey to have a similar thing, but because of her backstory, it can never yeah. truly be equal because like you look at these kind of classic relationships because like Cyclops and Jean Grey is like a huge mess. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> like, I hate them as a couple too. Right. And, and even like Lois and Clark with like Superman and Lois and Clark, like I'm not up to date on the comics, but classic iterations it's supremely uneven or like yeah. even steve trevor and and diana yeah. in the comments right like supreme even though she's the superhero yeah still supremely uneven in terms of their footing within the relationship so like i feel like batman and catwoman are sort of the ideal in comics in terms of a relationship that is with two people who have a more even um idea of power and possibly because of what you were talking about earlier with the the shared idea of trauma. Like, they both have this shared trauma because it is comics. And so we are faced with seeing dysfunctional characters who have to kind of commit to dysfunctional relationships for drama, which is interesting. Because, yeah. like, I mean, when you think of ideal relationships, to me, it's like Coach and Tammy Taylor in Friday Night Lights. <laughs> <laughs> Where it's a, it's to a, me, it's I mean, like <laughs> Leslie and Ben. <laughs> That's right, like ideal. Right? Like it's, yeah, it, it's it's the notion that you don't have to have relationship strife for right. um, drama or story's sake. But I don't know that comics is. Oh necessarily no, comics there. are just animated soap operas with superheroes. Right. That's exactly. really what they are. They are soap operas, but there's superheroes in them. Exactly. Because everything that happens is fucking batshit. Literally, when it comes but, to Batman and Catwoman. <laughs> but I do think we're getting to the point where you have characters like Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, which we're not getting deep into, but yeah. Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy in the comics, by all accounts, have a far more function, like functional relationship. Um, and because you have more people writing, more people with varied perspectives writing to give us a more evenly paced like notion of what relationships can look like in comics, which is really nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope we do get a sequel to Birds of Prey and that we do get to see those characters on the yep. big screen together. Um, but yeah, but for me, you know, Batman and Catwoman, they are definitely the sexiest, again, because it's like there's that raw passion, that that, that magnetism that they're drawn to each other. And it's also kind of heartbreaking because it's like they it are... Is. You know, the only time we really get to see them, as far as we know, have a happily ever after was in the last Batman, the Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah. Where it's like they got to just leave all the bullshit behind and be the the people that each other believed them to be. Right. And I think it was nice that you got to see a happy possibly ending for them because. But that's because we won't get comics. We won't get endings in comics. Oh, no. Never. Never. It just has to keep going. So even like you see something like in um, uh, Superman or Spider-Man or or any of these characters, like it's a constant cycle of like the the Gambit and Rogue miniseries that Kelly Thompson wrote mm-hmm. was so wonderful. Like I freaking love Gambit and Rogue together. They're one of my like be- like one of my favorite pairings. But it was like you. I know it's going to end. I know that <laughs> happiness is going to end. I know it's short lived. <laughs> and but doesn't that say so much about life? <laughs> yeah. I feel like we did it. I feel like we cracked the code. There we go. <laughs> Comics are life, and that's it. Um, 
there was one other thing I was going to say about that, and I don't remember, and it's not important, so who cares? <laughs> we did it. Let's wrap. <laughs> so with that, um, thank you for listening. And as always, um, leave us some love on iTunes because it helps support and promote the show. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Sci-Fi Fangirls Pod. I am the Sharonis on Twitter and Instagram. And I am at Run With Scissors. And until next time, speak deep like a girl. Girl.